Tonight's reading is from Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have been received, now received through reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Kellyanne, uh, for reading for us. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open as we make our way through Romans chapter 5. Uh, wonderful to be back with you as we delve into this great book, per- perhaps arguably the most important book in the Bible, uh, the book of Romans. Uh, we've spent the last eight or nine weeks tracing our way through Paul's argument. In chapters 1 to 3, we saw the need that everyone has whether they're a good person or a bad person, whether they're a religious person or a non-religious person, the need that every person has to be justified, to be made right in God's eyes. And then in the second half of chapter 3 and in chapter 4, we saw the means of justification. Or to put it another way, we've seen the way that we have been justified. And we saw that we have been justified by God's grace. It was a gift. We didn't earn it. That's, that's what grace means. We've been justified uh, through faith. We've been justified by grace through faith. Faith, trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know lots of you have really loved getting stuck into the theology of Romans, figuring out what this tells us about who God is, how God works, figuring out the theory of it all. But Romans isn't just about theory. Just like a driving test, you need to get the theory right. You need to know what a stop sign looks like. You need to know what the different lights mean. You especially need to know that red definitely does not mean go. But again, just like getting your driving license, It's not all about theory either. There's practice, the practical side as well. It's all very well, isn't it, to know that green means go, but if you don't know how to make your car go, well, you're not going to get very far. What we have here in Romans chapter 5 is the sort of beginning of the practical side of Paul's argument. In other words, if you do trust in Jesus... If you place your faith in his life, death, and resurrection, if you trust that his work has justified you, what do you do next? 
How does your faith work itself out in your life? How do Christians live in light of the grace they have received? Or to use Paul's language, how do we live in light of the grace in which we now stand? Now, with all that being said, that doesn't mean that there's no more theory involved. Again, just like driving, sorry if you can't drive yet, when you're out on the road, you're still learning. You're learning the best time to leave home to make your journey. You're learning when you should and shouldn't toot your horn at that person who cut you off. Here's a little piece of advice. Don't honk your horn at someone if there's a set of lights up ahead, because it's really awkward when you have to sit beside them. And maybe most importantly, you're learning how far you can push your car when the petrol light comes on. You're learning all these practical skills, but there's theory involved too. That's what this next section of Romans is about. One of my favorite things about the book of Romans is that as Paul outlines his argument, he anticipates the question that you might have, the objection that you might raise in response to what he's just said. And we see that tonight. I think this is the first time that Paul sort of answers that question that you have been asking. Uh, If you're a note taker, and can I commend taking notes, uh, not because um, anything I say is going to be radical or revolutionary, but taking notes really helpful uh, for keeping, uh, for concentrating uh, on what God's Word says. It'll help you in your growth groups, helps you follow, follow the logic of the passage. If you're a note taker, this passage is really about two things. And it's split up into the two sections, verse 1 to 5, verse 6 to 11. Verse 1 to 5 is about rejoicing the Christian rejoicing in the hope that they have. And verse 6 to 11 is the proof that that hope is secure. Rejoicing in hope and the proof of that hope. And let me say, we're going to spend most of our time in verses 1 to 5. Uh, so when we get to verse 5 and you think, oh my goodness, where, how much longer is this going to go? Not that much longer. Uh, but let's pray as we look at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us wondering how we can be sure that we are saved. We thank you that you have not left us wondering how we should live once we have been saved. We ask now that you would, through your word and by your spirit, equip us and train us in righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verses 1 to 5 first, rejoicing in the hope that we have. In verses 1 to 5, Paul outlines the past, present, and future reality of the Christian. And each of those three areas, past, present, and future, are marked by, defined by grace. Let me get my PowerPoint clicker out. Um, Let's read verses 1 to 2 together. Therefore, Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Can you see the past, present, and future aspect there in those two verses? First of all, there's the past, verse 1. Paul summarizes really everything that he has argued so far in chapters 1 to 4. Since we are justified, we have peace with God. If we have trusted in Jesus, God is no longer angry 
at our sin. We are no longer at war with God. And all of this, which is what chapter 4 is all about, all of this was by grace. Grace, that means an unmerited gift. Last week in chapter 4, Paul argued that this pattern of grace first, of righteousness coming by grace, was nothing new. God's grace is present in the earliest chapters of Genesis. Abraham was made righteous by faith to demonstrate that righteousness rests on grace. It's not that Abraham had to earn it. It's not that we have to earn it. It's a gift. We are not justified, made right by anything in ourselves. So if you are a Christian, you were not made righteous because of anything in you. You were not even made righteous because God knew you would make a decision. You were made righteous by grace through faith. If you've ever been to or watched the life course, you'll know this idea. We spent a lot of time thinking about it. It's probably best summarized in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not through works, so that no one can boast. The Christian life begins with grace. The past of the Christian life is grace. But grace doesn't end in the past. Grace doesn't only define the beginning of the Christian life. Grace is the foundation of the present Christian life. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Grace isn't something that only marks your conversion, the beginning of the Christian life. It marks the whole Christian life. And here Paul is focusing in on the present Again, I want to make this really clear. It's not that the Christian life begins by grace, but is maintained by works, by your own efforts. Your Christian life is not dependent on your religious activity. Going to church, going to growth group, serving in church. All of these things are good things, but they are not what you stand upon. They are not the foundation of the ongoing Christian life. The foundation of the Christian life, the ongoing Christian life, is grace. Some of you probably know that, that great hymn, Amazing Grace. And the, the middle verses say this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed.'" Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Past, present, and future, all marked by grace. And if you're a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, you will know how good this news is. Just as you were saved by grace, so too you are maintained by grace. Theologians, or people who like to talk about Bible things and summarize things really succinctly, talk about this as the perseverance of the saints. The Christian perseveres, not through their own efforts, but by grace. 
the perseverance of the saints is a doctrine of grace, not a doctrine of works. And so in light of this, in light of Paul showing us that we've been saved by grace, that we are saved to grace, we've been granted access to this ongoing grace, Paul says, verse 2, we boast, oh, sorry, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In light of this grace, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, some translations might have the word rejoice, uh, where it says boast there, and that's, that's a good translation too. But boast is a good word because it captures the idea of confidence. And the original Greek word that's there is a sort of a cross between the two of rejoicing and confidence. So boasting is a good word to use there. But whenever we hear the word boasting, we think of something ugly, don't we? When we think of boasting, we think of uh, bragging about our own achievements or someone else. We would never boast, but other people boast, isn't that right? Uh, Bragging in their own achievements. But you can't brag about grace like that because grace, by definition, is not something that you have achieved. It's something you were given. But you can have the utmost confidence in that grace, so much so that Paul says you can boast about it, not in yourself, but in God's grace, his favor towards you. That grace that we've received, past and present, is the cause of boasting, of confident rejoicing. But the Christian doesn't only boast, doesn't only rejoice in the past and the present, they also boast in the future, the future they will enjoy that future in with the glory of God. That too is by grace. That's what Paul means by the hope of the glory of God. Now, whenever we use the word hope, we usually say we, usually say we hope in something when we're uncertain of the outcome. We hope that the lockdown will end soon. We're not sure that it will. We hope that it won't rain tomorrow. We're not sure that it will or that it won't rain. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it means eager anticipation of something certain in the future. Let me say that again. When the Bible uses the word hope, it means eager anticipation of something certain in the future. And the certain future that the Christian has is the glory of God, enjoying God forever. You might remember all the way back in Romans chapter 1 that God's glory is that which was rejected by Gentiles, by anyone who doesn't trust in God. Do you remember they exchanged the glory of God for idols? Uh, Here's what the verse said. They exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal beings and animals and that sort of a thing. God's glory is that which we formerly rejected. In chapter 3, God's glory is that thing which all have sinned and fallen short of. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the Christian is sure that even though previously they had exchanged God's glory, they had fallen short of God's glory, in the future they will enjoy God's glory forever. 
the Christian life is marked by grace, past, present, and future. And for that reason, the Christian rejoices. They boast. They're confident. They know that God will not abandon them. He has not abandoned them. He will not abandon them. He has not left them to their own devices. He will not leave them to their own devices. He will not deny them on the last day. If you're a Christian, your future is certain. And the Christian rejoices in that. Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, that's all well and good and makes sense, sort of, in theory. But, Peter, I don't really feel like rejoicing. Many of us, all of us, are suffering in some way, whether it's a strained or broken relationship, loss, uncertain futures, a bad diagnosis, loneliness, And all this talk of rejoicing sounds lovely, but in the midst of this fallen fallen world, it can sort of sound a bit naive, can't it? It Sounds good in theory, but here in the real world, it doesn't really work like that. How does suffering fit into the Christian life? How can the Christian rejoice in the midst of suffering? It's worth remembering that Paul himself was no stranger to suffering. Here's what he said in a letter that he wrote, probably the letter that he wrote just before he wrote the letter, to, this letter to the Romans, and the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said this, five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern, my anxiety for the churches. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul despaired of life itself. He wasn't one of those happy, clappy Christians who deny the presence of suffering in the present life. He knew better than most how awful life could be. And yet the same Paul, the same Paul who had undergone all of those things before writing Romans, says this in verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory That's the same word, boast. I don't know why the NIV has translated it glory. It's the exact same word. We glory, we boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Christian is able to rejoice, to boast, even in their sufferings. 
Maybe you're the sort of person who, when faced with suffering, deny its reality. You're a sort of stiff upper lip person. You bury it deep, deep down. That's me. That's what I'm like. Or maybe you're the sort of person that wallows in their suffering, that denies, that says that suffering denies the very goodness of God, maybe even the existence of God. But notice that Paul doesn't do either of those things with his suffering. He doesn't deny its existence, pretend it's not there. He doesn't say, this is evidence of God uh, not being there, of God not being good. Paul acknowledges the reality of suffering. He'll outline this much, in much greater detail in Romans chapter 8. But he says to the Christian, in light of the future glory of God, you can persevere. The Christian can persevere through suffering. They can even grow in their character. They can grow in their hope because they know that God's love has definitely been given to them. And this isn't a sort of blasé, every cloud has a silver lining sort of hope response to suffering. It's also not Paul saying, God will work all of this out for your own comfort or for your own material benefit. No, Paul says suffering is real. He doesn't promise an end to suffering in this life. Suffering is real. But the Christian can boast, can rejoice, even in the midst of that suffering. Because in the midst of that suffering, they have an opportunity to persevere, to keep going, to develop Christian character, to grow in their hope, that certain assurance that one day all of this suffering will cease. And Paul says they know this, they can do this by the Holy Spirit, which God has given to them. Christians get very confused about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. But here Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the means by which we can persevere, the means by which we can grow in our character, in our hope. How do you know if someone is spiritual? Don't look at what they do during a church service. Look how they respond to suffering. What is their hope set upon? That's how you know whether someone has the Holy Spirit or not. Suffering provides the Christian an opportunity to examine their priorities. One preacher said that suffering rattles the false foundation that we build our lives upon. And according to Paul, the Christian can even know that suffering will have a good effect on them, all under God's hand, as they persevere, as they grow in character, as they grow in hope. So let's recap. We've seen that the past, present, and future uh, of the Christian life is defined by grace. The Christian life begins by grace, is maintained by grace, and will end in grace. That certain hope of the glory of God. And this state of grace that the Christian enjoys 
can cause them, can, gives them the right to boast, to confidently rejoice, not just in the future glory they will enjoy, although that's there, of course, but even in the midst of their present sufferings, because they know that God can and will use that suffering to develop their perseverance, their character, and their hope. That all sounds very nice, doesn't it? Sounds quite convenient. But how can we know that it's true? How can we be certain that God will follow through on his promises? How can we know for sure that on that last day, whether it's your last day on this earth, or whether it's the last day when the Lord Jesus returns, how can you know for sure that you will see the glory of God, that you will persevere? Well, that is what verse 6 to 11 is all about. It is the proof of that hope, the reason we can know for sure that God will follow through with his promises. As I said, this section will be shorter. Let's read those verses again. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast, that's the same word again, rejoice, boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you catch the logic of Paul's argument? When Jesus died for you, he didn't do it because of anything good in you. Lots of Christians get really, really confused about this. And they think that Jesus died for them because he knew that one day they would make a decision to trust him. That that's why Jesus died for them. That God looked down, and that this phrase always occurs through the channel or the tunnel of time, and says, ah, there's Peter, and on the 3rd of May, 1998, he's going to say a prayer, so I'll send Jesus to die for him. I think this passage makes it absolutely clear that that is not how God works. How does Paul describe the person for whom Christ died? Well, in verse 6, they're powerless. In verse 8, they're sinners. In verse 10, they're enemies. Enemies. Jesus died for you. If you're a Christian, Jesus died for you while you were his enemy. If you're not yet a Christian, the Bible says you are still an enemy of God. And yet Jesus died for God's enemies. Would you die for your enemy? Would you die for that person at work that is really annoying? Never mind an enemy? Of course not. You might die for a good person. You might lay down your life for someone who you knew was going to make the world a better place. But you would never die for an enemy. And yet that is exactly what Jesus did. 
And so if Jesus was willing to die for you as his enemy, how much more sure can we be of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness? How much more sure can we be that we will enjoy God's glory forever now that we have been reconciled to him? If you're a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus for your righteousness, when God looks at you, he doesn't see an enemy anymore. He sees a son or a daughter. He sees someone worthy, worthy of his love, of his affection, of his faithfulness, someone worthy of enjoying eternity with him, not because of what that person's done, of course not, but because of what Jesus has done. To put it another way, if you're a Christian, God is as likely to change his mind about you as he is to change his mind about Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are secure. Your hope, your future is certain. It's not 50-50. It's 100% sure. How do we know? Well, look at what God did for you while you were his enemy. How much more certain can we be of his faithfulness now that we have been reconciled to him? It's a little bit like this. I heard this story uh, from another minister, uh, and I've confirmed that it's true. Uh, I've done my research. A couple of years ago, uh, a woman went in for an ultrasound. She was 16 weeks pregnant, and the ultrasound showed that a tumor was growing on her little baby girl's spine. The tumor was going to grow and grow, eventually uh, sucking enough blood away from the baby's heart that it would die. The woman was given options, as, as all women are uh, in this day and age. But she says, no, no, no. If there's a surgical option, I'm going to go for this. She went in for surgery at 24 weeks. The doctors opened up the woman's stomach. They took this 24-week-old baby out of the mother's womb, removed the tumor from the little girl, placed her back into the womb, sewed her back up, and she survived. The mother went to full term, and that little girl is now a happy, healthy four-year-old. This was in 2016. An amazing story. An amazing story. Amazing to see how far modern medicine has gone to preserve the life of the yet unborn. Isn't it amazing what modern medicine can do? But can you imagine... Can you imagine if that mother, having gone through this unimaginable ordeal, she had her surgery at 24 weeks. Can you imagine at 35 weeks, she starts to panic. She says to her husband, do you think the doctors are going to know how to get this baby out of me? It would be mad, wouldn't it? To question whether or not the doctors could do the easy thing Get the baby out. Getting the baby back in, that was the hard bit. How much more easy is it going to be for those doctors to deliver that little girl? The doctors had already done the amazing thing, the the unimaginable thing. How much easier is it going to be for them to deliver the baby? 
God has already done the amazing thing, the unimaginable thing. He's turned enemies into his children. We've gone from being enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. How much more able will he be to bring us into his glory? That's the easy bit. The Christian life begins with grace. The Christian life is maintained by grace. And the Christian life will end in grace when they enjoy the glory of God. This grace is what enables the Christian to endure suffering, to even see some good come out of suffering, all as they await the glory of God. And the Christian can be absolutely certain of that future because God has already done the hard thing. He has already reconciled them to himself. If he was willing to do that for his enemies, how much more willing will he be to rescue his sons and daughters, to welcome them into his glory? And so the first thing that the Christian should do is rejoice, boast, glory in God's grace. The Christian can even boast in their suffering because they have been reconciled to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our salvation not only begins by grace, but that it is maintained by grace and that it will end in grace. We thank you that you have promised to bring some good out of even our suffering. We thank you that you have promised that we can persevere, that we can grow in character and hope, that we can even rejoice in those things as we await that day when Jesus returns. Father, we thank you that you have done that amazing thing, that you have made sons and daughters out of enemies. Father, I pray that we would all have that confidence, that confident expectation of your glory. We long for that day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.